The issues that matter most, right here. The Drew Mariani Show. On Relevant Radio. Certain dates echo throughout history, including dates that instantly remind all who have lived through them where they were and what they were doing when our democracy came under assault. Dates that occupy not only a place on our calendars, but a place in our collective memory. December 7th, 1941, September 11th, 2001, and January 6th, 2021. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Welcome back and good afternoon. I'm Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com, filling in for Drew Mariani and taking your calls at 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. voice you just heard was Vice President Kamala Harris equating the January 6th riot at the Capitol to Pearl Harbor and the 9-11 attacks. Joining me to talk about that is my friend Andy McCarthy from NationalReview.com. Uh, is author of Ball of Confusion and lots of other great uh, books and has written extensively just today on this anniversary and as well as the uh, National Review editors had, I think, one of the most sensible editorial positions on this that I've seen all day long. Andy, welcome back to the show. Great to talk to you again. Ed, always a pleasure. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. And, um, and Andy, you know, I, I am. I have been. Well, I've been anticipating this because the media and, and and certain politicians have been signaling that this was going to be a a you know a 9/11 you know level retrospective about the insanely stupid Capitol riot a year ago, um, which I think was a disgrace. And I think that the politicians who egged it on should be ashamed of themselves. I, I also don't think it was 9/11. I also don't think it was Pearl Harbor. I think that this is something certainly was worthy of a media retrospective. I think the wall-to-wall, nothing else but this, uh, was really serving a different purpose today, though. And so I've been frustrated by this all day long. And uh, I, I read I read your posts today at National Review. I also read the editorial. I just mentioned the editorial by the um, by the editors at NationalReview.com. I was really impressed by that, and I think it really, I think it really spoke to exactly where I'm at on this. Well, we, we certainly appreciate that, Ed, and I, I do think that it's one of these things where, you know, to the extent that people of goodwill are trying to think about it and make sense of it, they're not being helped by the political classes, which on the one hand, uh, as you point out, are so politicized in this that it's like wall-to-wall because it serves a, a uh, political agenda, or at least they right. think it it does. I, I actually think it's probably counterproductive for Democrats, but uh, you know we shall see. Uh, and then on the other side of it, the uh, you know the Trump acolytes continue to pretend like this was no big deal. And I don't think you have to buy the Democrats' overwrought insurrection rhetoric to know that this was a disgraceful event, and that we should all mourn the fact that um, a norm which the United States can proudly boast that it created for uh, modern republics, which is the lawful, peaceful transfer of power, we'll never be able, I don't think the norm is gone, but we'll never be able to boast about it quite as as uh, proudly again because uh, of this event, which 
you know, obviously besmirches that. Um, I, I also think the main lesson of this is that, uh, you know, the Constitution held firm, and what right. nobody on the uh, left seems to want to talk about is no sensible person thinks that there was a conceivable chance that the government was going to be overthrown, that Biden was not going to be recognized as the next president, that the electoral votes weren't going to be counted. Uh, and to compare this to horrific mass murder attacks and acts of war where, you know, in, in combination, we lost nearly 6,000 people if you take 9-11 and, and Pearl Harbor. Uh, it, yeah, it, yeah, together, it's yeah. disgraceful. And anyone who's had, like my experience, at least in, in terrorism, who's had to deal with people who were actually maimed and the families of people who were killed in terrorist attacks, to see them trivialized for this political agenda, I think, is, is very offensive. And I don't think it demeans the importance of January 6th to say that. No, I, I don't think it does either. And, 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 and again, I mean, this is... I, 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 it's certainly worthy of retrospectives, of analysis, uh, analyses, I should say. Um, but to but to make it into the only the only issue that you're going to talk about, and then to use it as a platform, uh, and really, again, I think you're right in this. There's still a pox on both houses, um, both parties using it as a platform for you know various policy preferences that they had prior to it and after it. I mean, it's. It's really about emotional manipulation, and, and I do think that most people are going to see through that. I don't think most people spend their days going to the grocery store and thinking, how did January 6th impact the, the prices on the shelves and the fact that there isn't any, any food on the shelves? I don't think most people uh, look at, uh, you know, go to the gas station and have that same calculation. Most people, most people this is not a daily, a daily life sort of thing, and I think that in in both cases across the political spectrum, I think this really talks about a disconnect between between the lived shared experience of Americans and the political class that they've sent to Washington to govern them. Yeah, that's that's so right. And in terms of emotional manipulation, I think this small world of uh, an elite political class in Washington that that I think you rightly seems to be very disconnected from the, the lived lives of people. Um, they may, you know, as, a, uh, as an objective, I think they may want to manipulate the way people think about January 6th. I frankly don't think that, uh, I, I think people, it, it's, it's not counterintuitive to say that January 6th was important, but, but people aren't obsessing over it, and it probably won't be in the top uh, five or ten things that people um, vote about unless Trump is on the ballot. And I think that um, in terms of emotional manipulation, the Democrats are less trying to manipulate the public, although they'd love to do that, than they are trying to manipulate Trump. Um, I think they would love Donald Trump to run for president in 2024. They sure. love Donald Trump uh, to be center stage um, because that that gives them kind of a boogeyman to run against and, and something to take you know, people's minds off uh, the actual problems in the, in the country right now. So I do think they're trying to goad him into running. And a lot of what went on today, a lot of the theater, a lot of the, you know, really over the top rhetoric. Um, I, I think that's 
you know, they they think this is the way to appeal to Trump uh, and get him angry enough to say, you know, I'm going to run. You know, he, they're appealing to his ego. They're appealing to his uh, kind of thin skin in this regard. And they right. think it'll work. And it might. Who knows? It might. Might very well. We're speaking with Andy McCarthy of National Review. You can find him on Twitter, by the way, at Andrew C. McCarthy. And so be sure to do that. You can also sign up uh, for his, um, for newsletter notifications of his columns. He's got two columns out today. Um, one uh, one is about uh, whether or not Donald Trump, uh, examining Donald Trump's role in the Capitol riot, which you should read. Um, I, I'm more interested in um, how you saw Merrick Garland's speech addressing these issues today. Merrick Garland, of course, is the Attorney General of the United States, runs the Department of Justice, which he worked for for uh, quite a while as the uh, uh, prosecutor who um, convicted the blind shake of the 1993 World Trade Center attack, just reminding our, uh, our listeners about that. Uh, and, and I found your, your, your take on this pretty nuanced. I mean, clearly you're, you're, you're listening to what he has to say, and um, I, I really enjoyed the analysis of this. I, I'm I'm taken by the fact that he felt it necessary to speak on this date when so many other people were, were speaking on this. I think his speech is actually more likely to get lost. You may be one of the few people who actually do an in-depth analysis of it, Andy. And and I, but I I do think it's interesting and worth and and worth uh, considering. Well, I appreciate that, and I think you know obviously the most important thing the executive branch of the federal government is doing with respect to January sixth are the um, investigation and prosecutions of these right. cases. So you would think that, you know, what Garland had to say about it, which was really a roundup of what they've done so far uh, and what they, uh, what they see as the, the future of this investigation, you would think that that would be pretty consequential uh, because most of the other things that were said by the executive branch were purely political. And I think a lot of what Garland said was political as well, because he's sure. like, you know, like the rest of the government and the administration and the, and the Democrats on the Hill as well. They're trying to fit. They're trying to use January 6th pretextually to advance the Democratic agenda. The lead item of which right now is this um, progressive overhaul of our elections, which I think is unconstitutional. Uh, And one of the things he did was call for Congress to pass laws that would help the Justice Department manage elections. And, you know, as I tried to point out, the problem with that is the um, the Constitution makes the states supreme in the conduct of elections. So it's black letter constitutional law that Congress can't give the executive, a power that Congress itself doesn't have. So Congress doesn't have the, the ability, uh, at least constitutionally, to give Garland what he says he needs. But it's not surprising to hear that because that's, you know, that's what the agenda is. I thought the rest of it that was interesting was just, you know, he basically said they've charged 725 people so far from all across the country. Uh, the lion's share of the cases are kind of um, low-level misdemeanor cases. Uh, he says that we're finally now getting to the point of prosecuting the felony cases. There's about 325 of them. The most serious ones clearly involve assaults on police officers. There are about 140 uh, police who were injured. Uh, the injuries range from, you know, sort of low-level stuff for the most part, which are, you know, cuts and bruises, up to, uh, you know, broken bones, burns, and one officer who we heard 
uh, testify at a hearing uh, who got a mild heart attack in in connection with the uh, event. So right. uh, those cases are the ones you know he regards as the most important, the assaults on the police and what he calls um, conspiracy to obstruct Congress, which I think there's about 40 of those cases. Uh, we are speaking with Annie McCarthy of National Review, nationalreview.com, taking your calls at 888-914-9149. Let's go quickly to Marie in St. Charles, Illinois, who wants to join the conversation. Marie, welcome. Yes, hi, welcome. I, you know, I just wanted to um, share my view on this. Uh, sure. You know, I, I have to say, I'm sorry, I was far less upset about what happened at the Capitol, although I don't approve of it. Um, what they did was very foolish, and anyone who hurt anyone is wrong, um, obviously. But I was very upset all summer long as I watched them on the news burning down cities, assaulting people, killing people. Um, terrorizing people and you know it was very upsetting to me when they boarded up a mall 10 minutes from my house because of threats of violence and I had to figure out where my kids were and that was very frightening and I I, I don't to this date there's been no investigations or I'm not aware of anyone that was actually charged and put in jail for those crimes Marie thank you for your call I know they were arrested released Yep. Yes, they were. Marie, thank you for calling. I want to get back to Andy on this point, too. Um, uh, you know, I, I lived in Minneapolis at the time when this was going on, or I lived near Minneapolis. I would, fortunately didn't live in Minneapolis. I lived near it, though. And they have made arrests. They have made some prosecutions out there. I think they've got a couple guilty pleas. They've, they've prosecuted. I think they found the guy who burned down the, the, the police precinct and so on and so on. Uh, Andy, I, I, first off, I want to get your reaction to what Marie had to say, because I think that that's something that a lot of people are feeling today. And, and I wrote about this today, which is that, you know, there were insurrections in in several American cities. You had uh, not just the stuff that Marie's talking about, which certainly w- was on the on the thing, but you had in Seattle, in Portland, in Minneapolis, in Washington, D.C., you had uh, radicals seizing control of several city blocks and declaring autonomous zones, un, un, you know, under which, you know, uh, American uh, law had no uh, had no uh, purview, at least according to their own declarations. I mean, that's kind of insurrectiony, and yet we're not we didn't do we didn't do an annual observation of of Chaz or or, or some of the other places um, that uh, that experienced that. Gee, and here I thought these were mostly peaceful protests. Um, <laughs> exactly. Who knew? Um, who knew? You know, look, I, I, I think that, um, you know, there's a, the big complaint on the left is that we don't take uh, January 6th seriously enough, which I've always thought was ridiculous because, you know, just the mere fact that we call it the Capitol riot, um, when they object to, to their riots being regarded as riots, and that's why this, this sort of jokey reference about the you know mostly peaceful protest Uh, but when you know there's something on the other side riot isn't good enough it's got to be an insurrection i guess because they had no they couldn't find a more serious word in the dictionary or something i guess but um i I think the reason the left you know the left says the the conservative and republican side isn't taking this seriously enough and i think the reason for that I don't agree that we're not taking it seriously enough, but to the extent there are people who aren't, um, there's a big problem in this country with the two-tiered system of justice where 
Um, the tendency of the ruling class is to look the other way when the politically motivated violence is on the left, and there's a lot more of that. Yep. And with respect to, you know, the post-George Floyd uh, demonstrations, uh, many of which turned uh, violent, and there was looting and, and uh, lethality and, and the rest, um, that went on for much longer and was much more deadly than, you know, the four or five hours of January 6th. So I think what disturbs people is it rings inauthentic to them that the Democrats get this hysterical about January 6th when they're so happy to look the other way when the violence is committed by people who they regard as on the left and in their camp as far as, uh, you know, ideological and, uh, you know, partisan agenda items are concerned. And, and to- and, and to be and fair, that's Andy, the problem. Yeah, and to be fair, it goes the other way too. But the the the, the issue is, and I'll explain why it's an imbalance. But it does go the other way too. You had the same people who were uh, urging for you know troops to go into these cities and to and to you know declare martial law or or some form of it um, uh, to to put down these riots in in cities. Uh, suddenly talk about how well this was just a you know this was this you know this was just a you know a a, a, a protest you know a, a passionate protest at the capitol now i think that there's denial on both sides of this right and i think we're seeing this from from both sides the difference though is that culturally and especially in terms of the media uh is that it was covered differently it's covered much differently and that's yep. that's sort of why I, I bring this up. Not that I'm trying to excuse what happened at the Capitol, because that completely disgusted me. And the people, the people in Congress who pandered to that and 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 ended up, you know, uh, having it backfire in their faces, should barely be ashamed of themselves for trying to advance a, a, a legal theory which they knew wasn't wasn't right, which they knew was right. unconstitutional. Uh, that, that, that to me is extremely frustrating. But the issue here, and I'm trying to get to what Marie's talking about here, because it's it frustrates me too, Marie, which is that the coverage of these things are, is, so, is so different that it really does, um, it really does call into question how we can trust um, any, of, any of these institutions going forward, the media, the, um, the two political parties too. Yeah. Ed, look, Ed, we began by, this conversation by talking about how odd it was to compare January 6th to 9-11. And I, as you were uh, teeing that up, I, what, what hit me was, you know, I really wish that we were allowed to see the images of 9-11 and, the, um, right. uh, and that it got the kind of wall-to-wall treatment that the January 6th gets. And I would point out, you know, everybody said we needed to mark today because it was an important anniversary. And when there's an anniversary like this, we need to take notice of it. And it occurred to me that, well, you know, the Benghazi attack happened on the 12th anniversary of 9-11. And I haven't heard a reference to that all day. You virtually don't hear a reference to it actually on on 9-11. And that was a, uh, you know, obviously a devastating, deadly attack, which included uh, the murder of an American ambassador, which is an act of war. Um, right. And, it, you know, it barely passes with any notice whatsoever. So I think what gets people angry and what turns people off 
is that there's there's obviously so much political freight and partisan freight that goes into the not only um, you know how we talk about these things, but how and whether they get covered at all. Indeed, indeed. We're talking with Andy McCarthy of National Review, nationalreview.com, at Andrew C. McCarthy on Twitter. I want to get back to what Garland had to say. We've got a couple minutes left. and You bring something very important here, which is the, the types of cases that are being brought, the types of sentences that are, are, are being meted out. Garland apparently asked for some uh, patience on bringing more serious charges, but the Department of Justice isn't really contemplating more serious charges other than the the misdemeanors and the and the lower level felonies that have already been put out there i mean this doesn't seem to be the type of uh case and there's hundreds of these cases which there should be because there was thousands of people involved in this but this doesn't seem to be the kind of case that's going to that's going to have you know huge uh, you know eye-popping sort of uh charges here it looks like they're really just getting yeah. people for for you know misdemeanor and, and felony um, assaults and um, and uh, vandalism yeah well you know the uh first of all this this crime to the extent there were crimes committed here it was on television you know this is right. not one of these ones where we're waiting for the uh uh for the whistleblower witness to emerge right fall out of the sky right. and tell us all what happened we saw it um so this is not one of these cases where you know, there's a lot of mystery about what happened. And the difficulty here is that the facts on the ground, which were bad enough and don't need to be exaggerated, uh, simply don't meet the rhetoric that's been attached to them. So, for example, this can only be called an insurrection as far as uh, Democrats on Capitol Hill are concerned. Yet there's an insurrection statute in the federal penal law. And out of 725 people who've been charged, exactly zero have been charged with insurrection. And you can bet that the Biden Justice Department would love to prove some insurrection cases if they could. Uh, the problem is that this was not an insurrection as a matter of law. They'd have a very difficult time proving that. They can't call it seditious conspiracy, which we use in a lot of terrorism cases. They compare this to terrorism. But you have to prove that people conspired to levy war against the United States or to oppose the government by force. And they simply don't have that kind of proof. We're able to use that in terrorism cases. They can't use it here. Now, the, the crimes, particularly the felony crimes that have been charged, are serious business. Obstructing Congress uh, yep. under the Sarbanes-Oxley provision they're using is a 20-year felony. And obviously, assaulting federal police officers is a very, very serious crime. But you're not going to see, Ed, the kind of sentences that you get in terrorism cases. Here, if someone gets five years, you're going to say that person got hammered. In a terrorism case, if someone got five years, there would be outrage. And that, that doesn't mean that January 6th is unserious. It's just to compare it to something that it's not comparable to um, is very confusing for people. Uh, well, and Andy, of course, you know this better than most people because you've been in the you've been in the trenches in uh, prosecuting terrorism, and that's one of the reasons why you are such an invaluable resource at times like this because you have such a, a great analytical, professional, and balanced perspective on these I, things. I encourage people to go to nationalreview.com, sign up for Andy McCarthy's newsletter. Um, it's uh, it's it's a great way to keep up with what's going on over there. While you're there, read the National Review editorial board. 
message on January 6th because I think they hit exactly, exactly the right tone on this. I'm Ed Morrissey, filling in for Drew Mariani. We'll be back. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. It's 30 minutes past the hour. I'm Ed Morrissey of hotair.com filling in for Drew today. And we're turning our attention now to Hollywood with our good friend Christian Toto. He's an award-winning journalist and film critic who runs HollywoodandToto.com. He regularly contributes to The Daily Wire, Real Clear Investigations, TheHill.com, and JustTheNews.com. A member of the Critics' Choice Association, and now he's a member of the Authors' Circle. I guess there's no, there's really no such thing as Authors' Circle, but you're a new author. Your, your book, Virtue Bombs, How Hollywood Got Woke and Lost Its Soul, is just about ready to come out. Yep, uh, January 18th, and all authors get a secret handshake, which I, I can't share at the moment, but it's a very, it's a, well, it's you a very know, special I, ceremony, and it's exciting. I, I, I know the secret handshake. I, I, I only got one <laughs> shot at it so far, but uh, I do know the secret handshake. So, yes, it's great to have you in the club. Um, so, Christian, uh, this is uh, it's coming out on January 18th. Of course, it's, um, it's available for pre-order now, and as any author will tell you pre-orders are important so if you're interested in this the time to 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 sign up for this is now because that does certainly help out with um with getting more um visibility for these and this is a book that's really i think going to be it's really going to speak to people who are audiences not just of films in theaters to the extent that we even have films in theaters anymore we're talking about we're also talking about uh, films, uh, you know, Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV, just, you know, regular television, Hollywood, the whole production thing, the whole production um, industry has really decided to go all in on virtue signaling. You and I have talked about this on, on Drew's show before, but you've had a chance to really dig into this and sort of distill it down into a, a really good systematic, rational um, uh, argument here. One of the things that really kind of took me aback was, uh, I guess a year or so ago, someone, one of my Twitter friends, I, I forget his or her name, sent me a clip of Siskel and Ebert. And if you don't know who they are, they were film critics in the 80s and 90s, and they were very popular, and they had the thumbs up, thumbs down as their, as their symbol, whether they liked it or not. And I had never seen this clip, or at least I remember I saw it and didn't remember it, but in the 90s, it was almost like you were looking into a crystal ball at how movies would get woke and get this sort of movement, and also how critics would be the same. And they talked about how you know you, you can't follow a rule book when it comes to being a film critic. You have to kind of let the movies you know speak to you. You can't sort of try to please a certain audience and please a certain narrative. And that's exactly what's happening on both sides, on the critical side, and also, of course, on the, on the Hollywood side, where you've got these sort of messages baked into the cake. And it makes the films less interesting, less exciting, less authentic, and also more insufferable. Well, yes, definitely. And I, and I think that I, I certainly think that we could probably all think of, you know, some some 
real examples of that. And I will say one of the most insufferable movies I ever sat through in a theater, in a movie theater, as opposed to just catching it on, on cable at some point, was The Shape of Water. And, and you and I have discussed The Shape of Water before. That was just so, just so slam-packed with didactic messages and, and, and virtue signaling that I, I said, this movie is so bad that it's going to win the Oscar for Best Picture. When I walked out of the <laughs> theater, right? I was not surprised because it hit all the right notes. Um, it was, it was um, amazingly bad. <laughs> it's, it is amazingly bad, amazingly unwatchable, and it's exactly what Hollywood thinks is the pinnacle of the movie-making experience is to, is to, is to just pound messages into their audience's brain and and try to win kudos for you know virtue signaling we see it in comedy when you when people are doing clapter uh, trying to get clapter rather than laughter uh they're not looking for they're not looking to entertain they're not looking for genuine uh emotional responses what they're looking for is to score points yeah i mean the shape of water is a great example because it won best picture it was an oscar darling and the oscars were once I mean, they've always tried to honor the best and brightest in movies, but the films that are nominated and the films that win today are often really aimed at a very small demographic. Uh, they don't speak to the, the public at large. They're, you know, they're not populist in any real sense of the word. Right. And they're often films that even the ones I like, I'm thinking, I don't think I need to see that again. And, you know, we think about, you know, in, in past decades, the best movies were, Things, were, were things you'd want to watch again and again. You want to pass it on to your children. They're, they had these universal themes, and I think too too many films don't, or they just they're just narrow casting. And it's clearly one of the many reasons why the Oscars, both the event itself is unwatchable, but also there's so little interest in it. I mean, the, the average person doesn't care. They haven't seen these movies. They're not interested in these movies. And even when they hear about these movies, they kind of shrug their shoulders. I don't blame them. And look, I mean, I don't think anybody's saying that. Filmmakers should not feel free to express themselves through their art. I, I, certainly, that's 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 fine, and and most good art has a point of view. I think the problem, though, is that there's only one point of view that's acceptable at any one time, and even that, uh, even that definition changes. It keeps shifting around, and I think mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about this in. Um, in, in discussing cancel culture and discussing um, in discussing the way that you know former classic films are treated now um, or even just recent films uh, suddenly become problematic because something shifted and all of a sudden uh, it's double plus ungood. <laughs> I mean, really, think about it. Be careful what you say today, because who knows what tomorrow will bring? You don't right. know what jokes, what what kind of comic narratives are acceptable at the moment and unacceptable tomorrow. And that sounds like hyperbole, but there's an article in Variety magazine, which is one of the biggest entertainment publications around. And they were critiquing a movie from two years ago and saying it was, it was problematic and, you know, maybe you should have a warning label. It was the Quentin Tarantino film once upon a time in Hollywood. So even all movies all the way back to 2019 were suddenly, you know, suspect. And, you know, it's, listen, society changes, cultures change. I think in many ways society evolves and improves and we become more uh, empathetic to, to certain things that maybe we weren't and shouldn't should have been in the past. I, I'm certainly open to change and growth, but this is often ridiculous. And, and one of the other issues that this really kind of sticks in my craw is the boy, they couldn't make that movie today. Well, that's a terrible blazing saddles, say. blazing saddles. Yeah, it, 
<laughs> Blazing Saddles is the ultimate example, but there are many right. others as well. And, you know, that was a funny comedy that was insightful. It really had a message against racism, but it kind of trafficked in some, in some tough language in a way at times for humor and for commentary's sake. And do we strip that away? Do we, do we as a culture, we can't do that anymore? That, that just seems profoundly wrong. Well, it's interesting because if you, and I know that you know this, but, you know, Mel Brooks was surprised he got it made in the first place, right? <laughs> and, and uh, you know, you hear Mel Brooks talk about this. I think he talked about it recently. And and basically he said, well, if I'm going to go out, because he'd had some, there'd been some disappointments with some of his movies. They were good movies, but they just didn't catch on. And I I think he he he, he decided to do Blazing Saddles because if his if he was going to crash his movie career, he might, he might as well crash it big and and <laughs> say what he wanted to say on his way out the door. And of course, it turned into this huge hit. Um, but um, which tells you something about you know fully committing to what you're doing too. But but yeah, I mean even he says there's no way that that would get made today because uh, people don't get the joke. Yeah, and even when you explain it, I think one of the really uh, unfortunate elements of this woke mindset is that intent no longer matters. You know, yes. if you're hanging around your buddies and maybe you use language that's a little bit salty or a little bit rough or even use a, a stereotype that you wouldn't use in public, if it's with your buddies, you know that you're all good friends and love each other, then it, it's not a big deal. You're kind of just ribbing each other. It's kind of kind of part of the experience. I mean, it's like kind of like the... The rough language in 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 the in the, in the uh, when you're a soldier, you use that to kind of cut the tension, to kind of process the what you're going through. You know, wh- when you're friends with someone, really deep, you know, have a bond with someone. Sometimes you can say kind of crazy things or wacky things or kind of rib them in a way that you wouldn't other people. And the intent is obviously kind and decency. You're just having a little fun. And I, I think sometimes with some of these jokes, even if it's meant to disarm racism and to kind of call out bigotry. Uh, that's no longer, you know, that's no longer an excuse. Oh, you just can't do it. And that's, that's wrong. You, you know, we need to kind of think about intent and think about what the purpose is and, and look at the bigger picture and let our artists be able to say what they want to say. Well, I, th- I think that's true. We're speaking with Christian Toto of HollywoodandToto.com. He is also the new, uh, the author of the new book, Virtue Bombs, How Hollywood Got Woke and Lost Its Soul, coming out in about two weeks. Uh, well, 12 days, actually, coming out in 12 days. And, but you can pre-order it right now from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and, uh, or at your local bookstore. And Christian, um, there lots of different topics in here. We're going uh, to have plenty of time to talk about a couple of these things. Obviously, we want people to buy the book, so we're not going to go over the whole thing here. But I'm you know, just going over this book. You've got a number of different, um, a, a number of different uh, chapters here, I think all of which are really good topics in and of themselves. Virtue signaling on parade, the hostage uh, apology. Uh, But I want to first go to two thumbs down for woke critics because you're a critic and I'm an occasional critic of of films. And the critics really should be the ones that are calling this out, right? I mean, the critics should be the one that's saying, look, you know, it's one thing to have a message. It's another thing to beat it into your audience. Um, or, you know, this message isn't even appropriate. It's not appropriately done. Um, I certainly would have appreciated that with um, <laughs> Shape of Water, which I'm going to keep bringing up, The Shape of Water. <laughs> uh, truly awful f- film. Um, what's going on with the critics? Are the critics now sort of trapped in that system, or are they the ones, are they the gatekeepers that are sort of enforcing this? 
I mean, it's B. They are enforcing it. They they do subscribe to these theories, and you can see it in the reviews. I, I, you know, you'll see a review that maybe critiques a film if it doesn't have enough diversity in its cast. You'll see uh, Jim Gaffigan, a comedian, uh, was complaining, uh, I guess, a year or two ago that he made a movie about a father and son. Like he played the father. Some his you know his co-star was the the teenager in the movie. It was about their relationship. And he said that he read criticism of the movie saying, well, why is it about a father and son? Why not a, a, a daughter, a mother and daughter? Well, because that's what it's about. Nothing wrong with a mother-daughter story, but that's what this is about. And it, it, it can be surreal. I, my favorite example is there was a movie a couple of years ago called Kin. I never even saw it. It was some sort of space science fiction theme where you had this teenage kid and the, the aliens maybe captured his parents, something, something silly like that. But the kid, the kid was a teenager, and he found a space alien gun, and he used the gun to either protect himself or his family or both. And the critic went bananas and said, how dare they have guns in this movie, and this is a teenager, and you know there are school shootings in real life. And he gave the movie an F and just was outraged by it. And then he, and then he kind of lashed out on Twitter after he filed the review. I'm thinking, wait a minute. Is it a good movie? Is it a bad movie? Did it keep your attention? With the special effects strong, with the acting performances convincing, you can't review a movie and dislike it because there's a space gun in it. It's outrageous. But and that's an extreme example. But there are other examples across the uh, critical landscape that are not as outrageous. But they they certainly they, they're in the same ballpark. Well, what I would say, Christian, in the same ballpark, and this is another chapter in your book, was the critical reaction to. Uh, the uh, Ghostbusters movie, not just the critical reaction, the, the, the Ghostbusters reboot with Melissa McCarthy, Kristen Wiig, um, uh, Kate McKinnon, and Leslie Jones, um, but the critical reaction to the, to the popular reaction <laughs> to this, which was, which was, to be fair, mostly predicated on the way that that, that film was marketed. I'm not even sure that this thing had a shot of getting off the ground even before anybody had a chance to see it because the marketing was so uh, luxury and didactic and, um, and accusatory and the critics chimed in on this and audiences just didn't, just didn't like it. Yeah. One of the things about the whole woke, I mean, we're talking about how too many film critics are woke and they kind of use that as they write reviews, but journalists, the same the same way. I mean, they are part of this whole bigger picture, and they enforce it as well. I mean, the Washington Post is basically wagging its finger at us and saying, if you don't like the Lady Ghostbusters movie, you're you're a misogynist. You don't like women. How about I I love women, but I maybe didn't like the movie or or thought the trailer was 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 uh, it lacked some laughs. I mean, that's how absurd it was. And there was even an argument. Well, you know, women need role models and they're little girls that they see these Ghostbusters and they're played by actresses, and then maybe they can aspire to be scientists when they grow up. I mean, it's it's kind of a lot of cultural weight to throw in a comedy for starters, and it's a right. bit of a stretch. And, and certainly, representation matters to a certain degree, but you know, I, I don't know if little Jane or Sally is gonna, you know, pu- push past a scientific career because they didn't see Ghostbusters. Well, no, and I would say that Hidden Figures was a much better film for that, to be honest yeah, with you. That's right. That's a great one. It was a much that's better film, film, period. It was a really yes. good film. Hidden Figures was a really good film. And it actually was about, you know, women in, in STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And, yeah, I mean, I don't think that women 
I don't know that women and girls are really looking to follow into the metaphysical um, <laughs> realms, which is what Ghostbusters is about. Uh, you know, I always, I found I found that it was you know I've talked about this before too. I just I found that the the extremes in this were just they both missed the mark. It just wasn't terribly good. You know, it wasn't horrible. It wasn't just it was just didn't engage. Um, too many too much you know Mary Sueism going on there, and 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 not enough. Uh, not enough of senses of vulnerability or anything else like that. It just didn't work. And that's not a knock on the people who made it. So, you know, not every Hollywood film works. Um, the problem is that when you put $300 million into a film, <laughs> you better hope it's going to work. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about financing of Hollywood films, how that plays into message control, how that plays into political correctness and wokeness, plus much, much more. I'm Ed Morrissey, filling in for Drew Mariani. We'll be right back. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester. It's 49 minutes past the hour. I'm Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com, filling in for Drew today, taking your calls at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. Joining me is Christian Toto of HollywoodandToto.com, author of the new book, Virtue Bombs, How Hollywood Got Woke and Lost Its Soul. And we're, ta- we're just in the middle of talking about some, some great chapters, some great topics in the book. The book is out on January 18th, but you can pre-order it now. Christian I mentioned on our way out of the previous segment about uh, financing for these films. I mean, the the Ghostbusters reboot with Melissa McCarthy uh, et al. by Paul Feig. He's the the guy who who um, who directed the film. That cost a lot of money. I mean, and it was up on the screen. You could see where they spent the money. the The special effects were first class. Um, the production values were first class. It just it just didn't. The script didn't work. The the characterizations didn't click. Um, what what role does financing and and the uh, bottom line play in this? Because you would think that if you're incentivizing your audiences to stay away from these films, that the money would flow back to films that would be more entertaining and, and, and less woke. But that doesn't seem to be happening. I think that Hollywood is very slow to receive the message from audiences. And it, it kind of reminds me of the, of the 2000s when there were many, many anti-George Bush, anti-Iraq war, anti-U.S. military movies coming out of the pipeline. And each one was <laughs> less successful than the last, the all bomb, essentially. The, the American public, for whatever reason, didn't want to see that on the screen. But Hollywood kept making those movies again and again and again. And finally, they realized, you know, within the Hollywood ecosystem that maybe we should stop making these. These are all very unsuccessful. We've, we've gone wrong. And so they stopped. And they actually made a movie that was more balanced and, and uh, positive toward the military, like American Sniper and Lone Survivor. Right. And they both were very successful. Of course, they didn't start a trend there. But yeah, Hollywood is very odd. You know, it's show business, but with an asterisk, because they don't always follow the money. They don't always want the money. They, they often will leave money on the table. And I think the best example in recent times is Gutfeld, the Fox News late night TV show that leans to the right because every late night show is either left of center or aggressively so. And you would think, well, that's a that's easy money. Just put one guy or gal up there who's right of center and see what happens because half the country doesn't have a late night show to call its own. 
And of course, God felt it very successful. And that's, that should have been no surprise. But A, Hollywood wasn't willing to do that. And B, now that they see that, they're still not willing to do that. There's no, there's no gut felt competitor rushing to, into production right now. They don't want to do that. So when it comes to this sort of woke mindset, they'd rather lose money or they think or they've deluded themselves into thinking it will make money. And that's why they keep making films and projects like this. True. I mean, talking about television shows, I mean, The View is minus their their conservative, um, I, I don't bag. know what, punch bag, <laughs> punching, punching bag. Yeah, exactly. And they're very publicly looking for replacement for Meghan McCain. And they've gone through a few, you know, a few people who are doing this on a sort of a temporary basis. And my question was, because it's usually either three or four other people plus a conservative, right? <laughs> Somebody who's representing the conservative point of view. I believe it's, I believe it's five, right? There's five people on the set. At least four, I think five. I, I, okay. I so you have at least show. three. You have, yeah, I haven't watched that show in ages. I see clips from time to time. Uh, so there's at least three other people on there who have the complete opposite point of view. And my question was, you'd probably be able to do a lot better recruiting one person if you were recruiting two. Because the current configuration of this is that person is going to get ganged up on on every single show and shouted down, which is exactly what was happening to Meghan McCain, which is the reason why she left. Um, she was tired of it. And I think anybody who had seen the interactions on screen and read about the interactions off screen uh, demonstrated that there wasn't really any room for dissent or debate that representation, we talked about representation earlier, that representation of another point of view wasn't, wasn't honest. It was there to, to, to uh, basically to, to allow the other people to virtue signal about how progressive they were. Um, and I think you see that too in, in movies, especially see it in movies where you have, uh, well, you know, no, we have some you know, conservative characters in here and they're all, you know, barely literate rednecks, you know, um, uh, who are, you know, who, who barely can function, and that's supposed to be the that's supposed to be the representation of conservatives, or even or even just moderates in in a lot of these things. And so it it goes beyond just the didactic of the message; it goes to representation too, right? It certainly does. I mean, what's interesting in the last few years is the faith based marketplace between the chosen, a really good TV show, and and a lot of independent films which are faith friendly. They've kind of worked kind of outside of Hollywood. They've kind of Right. blossomed without the blessing of the traditional Hollywood ecosystem. Now, I think Hollywood has taken it kind of dipped a toe in this arena. There's a, a, a studio called a firm. I think that's part of Sony and uh, even Lionsgate recently put out American underdog, which was another kind of faith kind of, I call it faith kissed movie because it wasn't overt, but it was, certainly was there. Right. So, but you know, generally those, those kinds of products are not made, you know, directly with Netflix or NBC or things like that. It kind of exists outside the system and just kind of crashes the party. But uh, there's an audience for it. Uh, the Chosen had a Christmas, I forget the title, might have been The Messengers. It was a Christmas-themed, kind of a special, uh, bigger-than-usual episode of The Chosen. It was in theaters for a few nights, and it was very successful. And, you know, I think people are starved for, for that kind of content, that kind of message, and Hollywood is, is less than eager to deliver it. Well, I'm glad that you brought up religion because I, that was really going to be my final point because in terms of representation, in terms of the, the way that they're used in, in storylines, um, this has been uh, – these are sort of like the, the, the final category of villains that 
Hollywood still likes to uh, still likes to put in there. If there's a priest, he's corrupt. If there's if there's a minister, um, he's corrupt um, or he's a fanatic. I, I think back to Contact, which it was another one of these didactic movies that the critics loved, and I thought was it wasn't as egregious as The Shape of Water, which I will. <laughs> I will. Did you not like again, that? I wasn't sure. <laughs> yeah, I will again affirm was one of the worst movies I ever had to sit through in a movie theater. Um, but I mean, the, the whole thing is, uh, the, you know, anything that's religious is fanatic, unless it's some sort of new agey thing, which is exactly what happened in, in Contact. And that's that's not recent. This is like 25 years ago. Contact is about 25 years ago. It's been near the beginning of Matthew McConaughey's um uh, career as a star, and Jodie Foster was still acting in front of the camera at that point in time. Uh, Carl Sagan was still alive, for that matter, when they made this film. Uh, it was based on his book. And um, But apart from faith-based or even faith-kissed films, religion is almost always brought up as a negative in films. And it's certainly for audiences here at Relevant Radio, it gets tiresome going to the movie theater, and you're expecting to see, you know, be entertained, and certainly point of view... But your lived experience is routinely sneered at, mocked, derided. And that is something I think that comes through very loud and clear from Hollywood and its pictures. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's one thing we don't want to strip away storytelling ideas and, and tools right. from a, a screenwriter. So if a screenwriter tells a story and it makes sense to him or her to have a person of faith in a villainous role, that, you know, that has, that's fine. I mean, that. But when there's sort of that preponderance of those situations and, and a dearth of people of faith painted in a, in a, I guess, a normal fashion like this, just, you know, going to church is just part of the routine and saying a prayer before dinner, you know, that's, that's, that's normal life for many, many Americans. But when you see those moments on screen, it's, it's often pretty rare. Um, so that, I think that's the disconnect there. We don't want to tell storytellers you can't do this, you can't do that. Of course, but it, it would no. be nicer if they could reflect more of the American experience in a more authentic way. I think people would respond to that. Well, I think they would too, and I think it's just a matter of balance, right? I mean, I don't think that anybody who prays in the movie is not necess- shouldn't necessarily be the villain. I mean, it's 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 exactly. We're out of time, but don't forget that the book is Virtue Bombs. How Hollywood Got Woke and Lost Its Soul from Christian Toto. It's forward by um, Andrew Clavin, by the way, who's it's a great forward to this book. And when you get it, you'll get a chance to read this. You can find out more about this at, um, at um, HollywoodandToto.com, which is where Christian writes. He's also on Twitter, at Hollywood and Toto. Is there a website for the book itself? You know, there is. And just go to, you can punch it in Amazon, it'll pop up. When the book is out in public, I'll have some more information on my website. And those can be excerpts coming in the Daily Wire and maybe one other outlet as well if you want to get a sneak peek at it. But uh, yeah, I, I hope people check it out. And again, I, I, you know, I love, I grew up loving movies and I, I hope it might. It's sort of like, you know, when your mom criticizes you, you know, it's coming from a place of love. We're going to have to leave it there. I'm Ed Morrissey filling in for Drew. Have a great evening, folks.